The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see people face to face in a time when we don't do that very often. It's good to see you. I hope you brought a Bible with you. You can turn to the book of Esther. Uh, The book of Esther. I want you to let me know something, kind of, if you can. Kind of raise your hand and be honest. This isn't this isn't a Bible shaming technique. That's not what I'm going for here, okay? So please don't view it that way. I want to know who's actually ever studied the book of Esther. Like you studied it. Not that you've read it before, but you, you studied it maybe with some other people. You went through something and, and Esther was the focus. Just raise your hand if you've, if you've done that before. Okay, just keep your hand up. I want to see. Okay. I saw three guys' hands and the rest were women who raised their hands. And there's a reason for that is because as we approach Esther, if you know anything about it, we think of it as a book for, for women. We hear that it's a, a beauty pageant and this beautiful woman won the beauty pageant and won the heart of the king and was able to help save her people. And it's just a really encouraging book, I guess, when approached in that light for women. I want us to know, though, that this was not put in Scripture for just women. It's put in Scripture for Christians, for all who trust in the Lord. That, that is what it's there for, and we need to <clears throat> learn from it, and we need to understand it. And I would guess if you know the story, as we go through it this month together, you're going to see, I think, that we have some misunderstandings of really what is in there. Because like many of the Bible stories that we learn as children and that we know and that we've even read, we seem to put in there our own preconceived notions of what's happening and what's taking place. My, my family, not, not me, I, I didn't get the opportunity to go, but my family recently went to the, Ark, the big Ark encounter down in wherever it is, Cincinnati or Kentucky or something down there. And my kids came back really excited and Dad, this happened on the ark, and this happened on the ark, and, and this took place. And I said, well, that's what they think. And they're like, no, it, it said it. I mean, that's, that's what it said. That's how, that's how they were fed. That's how the animals were fed, and that's how this happened. And I said, well, maybe we should read the story again, and let's see, let's see what it says. And what you find is as you read like the story of Noah and the ark, not a lot there. Not a lot of information there. They've created a big amusement park out of very little information, and they found a way to get 40 bucks off you uh, to walk through it. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, and I'm not saying you shouldn't go there or even even learn from it. There's some really interesting stuff, but we really don't know. And what I'm saying is then when when we hear about somebody like Noah, our own preconceived thoughts can go into that. And when we go back to God's word, we realize, wait a second, I... It never really says that. It never really lays that out. And I, I know that's happened for me as I've, I've read through Esther and studied Esther. So just a little background before we, before we start reading. Uh, Esther, in its historical context, the king that is being discussed here, Asurus, is actually, it's King Xerxes. That's what many of us would know him by historically, the name King, king Xerxes, he was king from 486 B.C. to about 465 B.C. To put this in a, a little context, because a lot of times I think we take Bible history and we separate it from world history and we never mesh the two together to understand what's going on. 
When King Xerxes was in place, Socrates was alive. All right, many of you know Socrates from philosophy class. He was born in 470 BC. At this point, the Olympics had been around for hundreds of years. So the Olympics, which we should have had this year, but didn't, they pushed it back, had already been around for a while. Okay, it had already taken place. King Xerxes, when he ruled, ruled all the way from India to Ethiopia. So a vast span was his empire. The, the story that we read here with Esther takes place in Susa, which is modern day Iran. So again, just trying to get our mind around where we are at and where we are located. About 50 years prior to what we read here, uh, we see the story of Ezra and Nehemiah with King Cyrus when, when Israel would go into bondage under Babylon, but King Cyrus would allow them to go back to build Jerusalem, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. This would have been about 50 years ago from what we read here. And we don't know why Esther and Mordecai didn't go. You, again, you can read into it. You could say, well, they decided to stay behind to save their people. Uh, Esther probably wasn't alive, really, uh, so she didn't make that decision. We don't know Mordecai's age. We don't know. Maybe they liked it. Maybe they liked where they lived and didn't want to go back. We, we really don't have that information. But something that we need to notice as we go through Esther, as we step back from it and just try to look at it from a, high, from a higher view, is we're going to notice as we go through this that often God works in the world like he does in the book of Esther, more so than he does in the book of Exodus. What I mean by that is this. We, we look in our life, we want the God of Exodus. Plague them. Show me this by a cloud of, by a cloud of fire. Right, God, I, I want to see this. I want to be known. Tremble the mountain so that we feel it and that we sense it. That's what we pray for so often. But what we find out in our lives is God most often moves like he does in the book of Esther. Just really behind the scenes. In fact, we never see God mentioned in Esther anywhere. Nowhere is he found. Nowhere is prayer happening, taking place. We don't see that anywhere in Esther. God is just kind of assumed behind, behind the scenes here. And I dare say in our life, that's often how God moves and works. And we're, I hope that we notice that as we read through this. Also, we should glean as we read how God is far superior to any earthly authority that we might face. And also that God's kingdom is far superior to any earthly kingdom. Because you remember the kingdom that they're currently in with King Xerxes is huge. It's a big kingdom. Alexander the Great actually is the one who would come and, and take over, finally conquer them and, and rule. So let's read together uh, Esther chapter one. We're gonna read the first eight verses and we're gonna break this down into sections and try to go through it to get through all the chapters that we need to today. It says, now it came to pass in the days of Asurus, which is Xerxes, uh, this was the Hasurus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Hasurus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all, all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Midia, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, now catch this, 180 days in all. 
And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords and fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Now I want to stop there because this is something that we need to see, this this party, this exuberance that's being thrown here. I think what we need to understand as we look at this section is we need to notice the absurdity of this party. Now, maybe as I was reading it, in your mind you were thinking, this sounds awesome. This sounds like something I needed to be at. He threw a party for six months straight. And when that got over, he decided, now let's throw a feast for seven days straight for for everybody who's still here. The Bible tells us about how extravagant everything was how the wine glasses were made of gold and every single one of them was different. Not one of them were, were similar. Linens everywhere and, and more wine than anybody can imagine. It was a situation where the king said he made a law and a decree. If you feel like you should drink more, drink more. Keep going. We, we have plenty. Don't, don't hold back for a second. Live up the party. Have fun. See what King Xerxes is trying to do here. He's trying to show off his wealth. He's, he's trying to show off his power and the power of his, of his kingdom. And it's funny because we can look at this and we can balk at it, right? I know for me, I can look at this and say, this is utterly ridiculous. But man, how often can we fall into this trap where we ourselves try to show our power or our worth on these types of things, right? On these outside materials, the, the car we drive, the, the clothes that we wear, the way that we present ourselves to everybody, how we, how we look. We want, we want the visuals. If, if any country is that way, our country for sure is that way today. We're very, very cautious about those things because based on the car we drive, we'll say how important I am or how much money I make. Based on the clothes I wear will determine what you think of me when you see me. We get stuck on how our lawn looks. There's this guy that I don't know who he is. I, wanna, I want to meet him so bad. I, I drive by his house every day, and every day he is in his yard making it look perfect. And it looks, it looks perfect. I mean, absolutely perfect. I love his yard, but I know this about this man, and I've never even met him. He takes his worth from his yard. He's in it every day with his fingers. And it's not like an acre of land. It's a lot of land. He is taking his time and he really cares about it. And some of us do that, don't we? We want our yards to look good. Why? Because we think it makes us look good. Or, or maybe the people that we associate with is very important to us because of status. This is King Xerxes. This is what he's doing. This is why he's throwing this party. So let's, let's keep reading and, and see what happens, see what takes place. We'll read the rest of chapter one here. 
It says Queen Vashti. So the queen also made a feast because that one just wasn't enough. She needed her own. Made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Hasurus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Hasurus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshena, Shethathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Midia, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do with Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Hasurus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memukan answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Hasurus. For the queen, now you need to listen to this. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Hasurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Asurus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which will make it proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So we have here something very interesting happening because we have King Xerxes throwing a party to show his power, to show his wealth, to show his exuberance in in verses one through eight. In chapter nine, all of a sudden, he wants his wife to come to the party and his power is shown, is it not? She says, no, I'm not coming. I'm not coming to the party. Well, wait, I'm the most powerful person in the world. You have to come. Nope, not happening. So he's embarrassed, no doubt. I mean, very quickly, the power of the king gets shot down by his own wife who doesn't want to be paraded around. Now, this is where the whole beauty pageant stuff starts to unravel for me because if, if you start to study this, many, comp, many, many people will say she was only to come wearing the crown. It's not some pretty thing, like put on something nice. That's not what's being asked of here, probably. It's the drunken king makes a drunken decision with all of his drunken friends 
to get his wife to come and in her embarrassment parade around and to show off. And she wasn't willing to do it. She didn't want to do it in this situation. And so she refuses. And really it shows us the limitations of the power of the king because the king can kill her. The king can do all these things, but the king cannot force her to want to go and be there and do that stuff. But now, because the king did this in his drunkenness, now he must decide what to do. And so scripture tells us that he gathers, gathers these wise men around him who I am guessing were part of the party and probably not in the right state of mind to be making the best decisions here. He gathers the wise men around to help him make a decision and they decide that Queen Vashti should be vanished forever from the king's presence, that she should no longer be able to come to the king or see the king. And the way that they work this out is they say, this will actually cause all the women in our land to know the importance of honoring their husbands. Now, women, you'd have to tell me if that's what you would get from this, but I'm guessing not. I'm guessing that this law probably wouldn't help uh, husbands at all, actually. But that's what they say. If the queen does this, then every woman will do this. They will not honor their husband. And so we need to make this a law and it needs to be done, king. And the king decides this is what's going to happen. Now, again, I want us to remember Esther chapter 1 verse 10 tells us that the king made all these decisions when he was merry from the party. It's a nice way of saying he was drunk. And so in this drunken state that he finds himself in, he's making these rash decisions that we're going to see when we get to chapter 2 that he's going to regret. He regrets making these decisions. When we read this chapter, we might ask, well, what can we pull from this? And really, I don't have time today to pull all the moral things from it. We'll talk about it maybe a little bit, a little bit later. There's all kinds of things I think that we could pull from this to say, don't do this or be more like this or Jesus is better than this king, which is absolutely true. He doesn't make these rash decisions, all this stuff. But I think it's important for us to keep, to keep going. So look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 18. After these things, when the wrath of the king of King Assurus subsided, let me stop there for a second. Most commentators will say that this was a three-year span. From the end of one to two was about three years. It was actually a battle that I can't remember right now off the top of my head. Supposedly a very famous one. Maybe some of you history buffs would know. But when the Persian Navy fleet fought against the Greek Navy fleet, and they should have conquered them, but Greece won the battle. I don't remember. It's interesting if you like history. But that's what would have happened between this time. And the king lost. Persia lost to Greece. And so after that is where we start then in, in chapter 2. And so it says, after these things, when the wrath of the king had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of this kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. 
Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadasha, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custody of the women. Now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's term came to go into King Hasurus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation appointed, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Ahabilhel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Hasurus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast and the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So what we see is the king was lonely. He was frustrated maybe over his decision with Vashti. The king got lonely, and so it was decided that the king would have all the young, beautiful virgins around be brought to him to try to earn his love. That's what was decided would happen. And whoever does the best will be queen. Now, again, I do want to note this. Please pay attention to this. This is not a beauty contest. <laughs> this is far from any beauty contest that you would want to put your daughter in. It's not fancying her up in some little dress and sending her off to smile and sing a song to everybody and maybe answer a question and then be voted on who, who wins the, the contest. That is not what's happening here. This is a very despicable contest. Yeah, beauty was a part of it. And the king would set these women aside and for, oh, for a year they would be put under 
preparations to be able to finally go into the king. But we, we cannot be ignorant of what happened when they went into the royal court in the evening. And then they went into the second house for the women in the morning. Why were there two houses? Well, I can tell you there was one house for the virgin women. There was another house for the non-virgin women. So you figure out what happened in between. And that's how you earn the king's favor. It wasn't singing, okay? And when we look at this story, all of a sudden, Mordecai and Esther enter this scene of where this is being brought up, that this is what uh, the king wants to do, this is what happens. And now all of a sudden, we're introduced to Mordecai and we're introduced to Esther and we see that Mordecai is the caregiver of Esther, but that's really all that we know. Well, we know some lineage, we know some background of, of Mordecai. We know that Esther is beautiful and we know that she was gathered in with these young versions. Now, there are some things we don't know. We don't know if Mordecai told Esther to do it. We don't know if Esther decided to do it on her own. We do not know if Esther was just outside one day minding her own business and all of a sudden, because she was pretty, she got grabbed by people of the king and said, listen, you're now a part of this, whether you like it or not. Scripture's very silent on that. And I think we need to let it be silent. We shouldn't force our own agenda into this story that we know why Esther is where she is at. Right? We, we just don't have that. But we do know this. When Esther enters the house of the virgins, she's put under the provisions of Haggai and she earns favor with him. It's very similar to Daniel, the story of Daniel, when Daniel and them would be swept away into Babylonia. But what happened? They found favor with the people. They, they, they were seen as delightful and, and smart and wise. It seems as if Esther has this same characteristic here because in this house, she, she earns favor. It seems as if, as we read, that Mordecai would worry about Esther. He worries about her well-being. He, he always is pacing, it says, back and forth, wondering how she is doing. And we know that Mordecai at some point either got word to Esther before she left or something and told her, do not let anyone know you're a Jew. D don't let that happen. So they were so integrated at this point that people wouldn't notice. People wouldn't even know that she was a Jew unless she came out and said it. And so we see that after a year of being groomed, the women were now ushered into the king's room one night at a time. Again, we, we can't pass by the ugliness of this. If Mordecai did tell Esther to do this, we would say, you are a bad caregiver for this girl. This is not what she should be doing. If Esther did this on our own, we would look at her and say, I do not want my daughter to be like you. Even though I think as we do our Bible studies on Esther, at the end, that's kind of what we think. We need to be like Esther. Mm. Making some bad decisions here, right? If, I mean, if she's the one who did it. And so we can't dismiss this, okay? But we do know Esther pleases the king and she's chosen to be the queen. Here we can begin to see God in the background. We see God working even in the midst of such darkness. We start to see God moving and acting 
in the midst of such bad decision-making, such wretched sin taking place all around, yet God we see is working and things start to fall in place for God's will to be done. The unfairness of the king to Vashti, the ugliness of this contest, the motivations for all of it, regardless of it. That's why I say we, we don't have to push into it more than what it says. Regardless of all of it, what we see is we see God working for his purposes here. As we look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, let's just read them. We can do it pretty quickly. We still see God moving. It says, when virgins were gathered together a second time, I think we skip over that. It wasn't enough for the king to have one. He now was going to get a second. Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Hasurus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king of Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So very simply, Mordecai hears of a plot to kill the king. He makes a way for the king to know. The king does an inquiry, finds this to be true, and has his assassins killed. And therefore, Mordecai really is a hero. We see Mordecai as a hero of this story. I think the big question as we read these two chapters is we try to step back as we say, what do we do with all this? What do we do with this, with this story? There have been Christians in the past who say, let's get rid of Esther. It never mentions God anywhere. Let's just, let's just rip it up and act like it never existed. But it, that's not what we have. We have this as part of the canon, part of scripture. What do we do with these first two chapters? Well, we could sit here today and we could go through all of the moral failures of this story that we could learn from. We could talk about vanity. We can talk about drunkenness. We can talk about abuse of power. We could sit here and talk about the abuse of women, being surrounded by bad counsel and listening to bad counsel. We could spend time speaking about trusting in the pleasures of this world to heal wounds because that's what King Xerxes was doing here. I'm lonely and I just lost a battle. What can I do? And they're like, get some women. That will solve everything. No offense, women, that doesn't work. But that's what they tried. That's what they're going for here. Because the things of this world are so tempting. So we could sit and we could talk about that. We could dive into sexual sin, but we don't have children's church, so maybe that's not important. Or we could spend some time going over the other multitude of sins that we see happening here. Now, I, I do think that we should learn from these things, and I, I think it's smart for us to recognize these things and maybe even to recognize them in our own life of how we struggle with that. But I don't know if that's the point of Esther 1 through 2. The one thing that really stands out in everything is how God's hand is silently moving during real-life situations. Not fake situations, I'm talking real life situations are happening here. 
And we can start to see, even without God being mentioned yet at all in this book, we can start to see God's will making its way to the surface. We can't look at all these situations and say, what a coincidence. What a coincidence with all this stuff happening. I mean, the king throws this big party. What a coincidence. The king gets drunk. What a coincidence. The king wants to embarrass his wife in front of all these men and she says no. Man, what a, what a coincidence of this taking place. What a, what a coincidence that this is, is happening. The king says, you're no longer queen then. Years later, now the, queen, the king is lonely. Man, what a, what a coincidence that this happened. Isn't it strange to think that he lost that battle, that he just should have won? He should have dominated Greece and he didn't because of poor tactics. What a coincidence. What a man-made error that is happening and taking place here. He goes to his people and they come up with a plan. Oh, it sounds like a great plan. And Esther just so happens to come along. Esther just so happens to gain favor with her keeper in the house. Esther then just so happens to win the love of the king. However, she did it, right or wrong, sinful or not. It's what happened and it's what took place. And then, if that isn't lucky enough, Mordecai just so happens to be sitting at the king's gate. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know why he wasn't working. Maybe he should have been more proactive. Maybe he was just lazy. But he's sitting by the king's gate and he just so happens to hear they're trying to kill the king. And it just so happens that the little girl that he raised is now the queen. And it just so happens that he can get word to her somehow. And she tells the king and it, it all plays out. Now you say, Pastor Tim, that was really annoying. You going through all of that. I know I was doing it. It was frustrating. But how often do you say that in your own life? Oh, what a coincidence this is that this is happening. Oh, why am I in this situation now? Why am I facing this time? Why is life so difficult? Why does it seem like God doesn't care? Why is he so silent? Where, where is he? God, if you're around, why don't you make yourself known to me? I mean, that's what could be happening in this situation with Mordecai and Esther. God is never brought up. He never makes himself known. He never just comes on the scene and says to Mordecai, listen, I'm going to use Esther to save the Jews, to save the chosen people. That is my purpose here. It's never said anywhere. But if you do your homework and read the rest of Esther, that's what's happening. The Jews to this day still celebrate a festival in honor of what God did through Mordecai and Esther of saving the Jews. They still celebrate it to this day. We cannot deny God's hand here. Now, as we read it, we might question, God, what in the world are you doing here? Why is all of this happening? Why in your plan would there be all this sexual gross sin? Well, why in all of your plans, if you are the omnipotent, as I got to preach last time, all-knowing, ever-present God, why is this in the plan? It just seems wrong. It, it just doesn't seem right. But you should take great encouragement from reading stuff like this. Why? Because your life is messed up. Just like this story. 
You're not a beauty pageant contestant. Oh, some of you want to be. Listen, you haven't won anything. You don't have that in your life. I don't have that in my life. When I look at my life, we were just talking about this as staff. When I look at my life, you know what I think? I wish everybody had it as difficult as I had it. Do you know what you think when you look at everybody's life? Oh, they could just walk in my shoes. They'd realize what it is to be, have a tough life. We all think that. Everybody. Oh, you might say, Pastor, I'm so blessed. But you don't really think that often. I'm I'm being honest. We think I have all these difficult circumstances that I'm facing. I have all these struggles in my life that I have been through. Nobody really understands what is happening here. But I have to share with you this. If we learn anything from the story of Esther, God knows, God knows exactly what is happening. And it's part of his plan. You say, well, God has planned out all of this sin. I say, no, God can work with sin. He doesn't like sin. He doesn't, he's not the creator of sin. Sin comes from our heart. We are sinful, but yet God in his great majestic power uses our stupidity and bad decisions for his glory and his grace. Now, please listen to me. Do not leave here and go do a bunch of dumb things and say, this is for God's glory. We'll have to go through Romans 6 together to deal with that because scripture speaks to that. But what I'm saying and the encouragement that I want you to get from this is, listen, in the mess of your life that you are living in right now, just chaotic, unknown things happening, all of these struggles that you are facing, I want you to remember in the midst of it all, God is there working. Oh, it might not be a pillar of fire that goes before you. It might not be toads and flies and the angel of death and just loud and boisterous God just speaking constantly. No, it might not work that way. In fact, it often does not work that way. Often in our life, we get the God of Esther who we must trust is working behind the scenes, within the scenes, even when we're not giving him the credit. The place where we find ourselves in today's culture and all this stuff that is going on, we may question, God, where are you? God, look what's happening to the church in America, right? And you hear all these scary things of all this stuff. Listen, God's still on his throne. God is so much more powerful than any president, any governor, any king who can reign from Ethiopia to India. That means nothing to God. He's above that. He's above any kingdom that has ever existed or does exist currently. I think we need to be reminded, Christian, you are a Christian first, not a person of this land. That's not what I carry with me, that I am an American. No, I'm a Christian. Am I American? Yes. Are you proud to be? Yes. I love where I live. Are you kidding me? I got to go on vacation this week. It was awesome. It was great. I think I'm thankful for that. But America doesn't come close to the kingdom of God. It doesn't hold any of the promises that God's kingdom holds. It doesn't have any of the security that the kingdom of God gives us. 
And when we look at this story of Esther as we continue through it for the weeks to come, I hope that we see in the mess of our life, God continues to work and move. And I hope we take comfort in that. Listen, God might not pluck you out of this situation and say, you know what? I'm gonna save you from this and free you from this hurt. No, you might have to face the hurt over and over and over and over again and the frustrations over and over and over again. And you might cry out, God, free me from this, but we won't be swooped up and taken to heaven. You say, but why not? Why? Because you're not God. God is God. And his plan is perfect. And we need to trust him the best we can by faith and be faithful to him through it all, knowing that he is the king of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. Tim is not king of Tim's life. At least I shouldn't be. So often I take that power. Don't get me wrong. Tim shouldn't be king of kings in my life. No outside person should be king of kings for Tim. Only the one who's earned it, Jesus. He's earned that title. And we must trust him in that role because he is the only one that can be faithful to work in the midst of all we face in our life. If you would bow with me and close your eyes. We're gonna pray together and then after prayer, we're gonna sing one last song. And I know I, I talked long, but it's hard to preach two chapters. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, I, I really think this is how we should respond to God's word. It's, I know many of us, many of you are going through some horrible stuff in your life. You're going through some difficult times. You might have been doing it now for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, a week, two weeks. You know people around you who have just been going through some horrible situations. And there's no doubt we ask at those times, God, where are you? God, come out loud and clear. God, let us see you in this. I hope that what you've seen as we just studied this little bit of Esther is that God is there. We serve a loving God. God is in the midst of Esther of saving his people. Through all that chaos, he will save his chosen people. And for those of us who've been saved by God's grace this morning, we should be praising him and thanking him for his salvation and that he will not let us go in the midst of bad decision-making, in the midst of our struggles. He holds on to us and he loves us and we have these promises that never change. So I hope that you will praise him this morning for his goodness to us. God, it's hard at times to speak into situations because I'm not in those situations. I'm not facing them personally. But God, I know that personally I face things that I do feel like nobody else understands. That nobody else is having to go through this. Nobody else is as busy as me or as tired as me or as hurt as me or struggling or all these different things. But God, as I sit and think about it, everybody I come into contact with feels the same way. We have these struggles, we have these hurts, and God, it's because we live in a world where sin is present. We live where we so often choose to disobey and to go against your holy word and your promises. 
And God, we, we see the results of that within our world. We, we feel it even within our own life. And God, oftentimes the enemy will use that to turn us against you. Even though often, I know for me, it's, it was actually my own sin. It was my own fault all along. So God, I pray that you would use the book of Esther in our life to remind us of your goodness to continue working. Even though we don't hear you, even though we don't see you, maybe we say we don't, even, we don't feel you, God. God, so often that's our fault. It's always our fault, not yours. God, I'm thankful for your faithfulness even when we do not give you credit. God, I pray that you would help us as Christians to be able to look back in our life and to see those so-called coincidences of how you worked for your plan and for your will to be done, even in our ignorance or even in our sinfulness. So God, this morning, I ask that you would just help us to respond to your word faithfully, that you would work in the hearts and the lives of your people to soften their hearts, to help them to lean on you, to love you, to acknowledge you, to praise you. God, life is difficult, no doubt. But you are faithful. And so we praise you for that. God, help us to respond now through singing, through honoring you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.